the same flow we followed last week, which is I have a certain amount I'd like to say that might take the whole night. Otherwise, also you may ask your questions. Can you hear me all loudly and clearly? Yes. That's good. Um, the, the main topic for tonight is renunciation. And I was reflecting that, you know, each, there, there's, there's supplementary chapters, but this book is about right attitude, about discipleship, about renunciation, and then later we have a chapter on devotion and also suffering as a path. But really, right attitude, discipleship, and renunciation, plus devotion, but they're all implied in that, are really the heart of what she has to offer us. And I thought the subject of renunciation would be a really good one to talk about here. I mean, when I started this class series several weeks ago, I was talking to you about how I felt that by going through this book, we would come to an understanding of the difference between psychology and spirituality, between being on the path truly and really just sort of having a happy life with a little spiritual component to it, which is an okay thing to do. Believe me, um, I remember when Swamiji was trying to talk to us about uh, meditation or... I, I can't remember the exact context, but the essence of it was he was trying to urge us on toward greater and greater levels of spirituality, but as he put it quite bluntly, he was willing to bargain with us. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, he would make deals. Um, and so I feel that way, too. It's, it's not fair to judge everyone from... Uh, let me phrase it differently. When, when we first moved uh, from Ananda Village, our isolated, happy little mountain life where we'd lived for so many years, to come and live in Palo Alto and sort of start this whole concept of, uh, of, of this, you know, of having essentially a church in a city, which now is sort of a, uh, an established reality for Ananda, but 15 years ago it didn't even exist. And 12 years ago it was just an embryo. And now it's, it's something that we really have here. But prior to that time, the, the, the picture of Ananda, which is the picture of Master's Ray, as Swami Kriyananda has brought it into existence, was really a single rural community. And the early years of that community were extremely austere. Um, didn't feel even slightly austere. It was only when other people would come like parents that you would sort of really see it through their eyes. As uh, David Gamow is fond of telling the story when his parents came to visit and then had, was sitting with them in the evening having dinner by, by kerosene lamp in their teepee, <laughs> which David and Karen thought was just so luxurious and beautiful. And, and he found his parents reminiscing fondly about the Depression for the entire evening. <laughs> <laughs> He never really heard them reminisce like that before. <laughs> but, of course, it became obvious when he reflected on it. And I remember another... I mean, I say parents because in the early years of Ananda, with few exceptions, almost everyone was in their 20s. And it, was a, it was really a youth movement. Now all the youths are old. <laughs> but uh, then it was really a youth movement, so that all the agitation came from parents. It was really great fun for us when the agitation came from the children of the people who had moved there, which was like a whole different level. It was such a new thing when, when older people would move there and their kids would get all excited. Um, but when it was kids, 
uh, I remember one parent came and the ch child was so proud of everything. When you build something from scratch, you don't see it in terms of what it is not yet. You see it in terms of that it used to be nothing and now it's something. So you're so proud of it that you don't see its limitations at all. So she was showing her parents around and out to her. She sort of asked, you know, well, what do you think? And he started talking about the grapes of wrath. You know, <laughs> again, sort of the dust bowl and just sort of scratching. But to those of us who lived that life, and there are quite a lot of us, Robert was there, and I'm sort of looking around. Stephanie Sandman came a little bit later, but there's a few who really lived in the, quote, early days, which we now, you know, have grown, as Swami said, just more and more golden as time goes by. But in fact, it was a glorious time. We really had nothing. You know, when people talk nowadays about having nothing, I say, you don't understand what really, what really nothing is. We had nothing. We had no money. We had no insurance. We had nothing. I lived in a little trailer that was just a little wider than my arms could reach. Some people had trailers they could actually reach from side to side. I couldn't quite reach from side to side. I could energize up to here. I, you know, I'd, I'd have to do this if I wanted to energize inside. And it was, you know, maybe three times this, maybe twice. And it was, you know, I, I, was, I, was, I moved a couple of times. I actually had cold running water, which was an incredible position to be in. Instead of just having to carry the water, no electricity. I mean, who would even dream of electricity? We were heated. We had gas heat and these propane tanks. And could cook food and no refrigerator, of course. What would you, how would you have a refrigerator? Indoor plumbing, of course not. We, we got a shower house, an unheated shower house where, that we used to share with all the creatures in the area. It was just so heavenly. You could actually go down there and have a warm shower. It was amazing. But I'd become so accustomed to bucket baths by that time that I didn't even bother to shift over. It was just more pleasant. I got $50 a month, which of course was more money at that time. Um, I didn't have bother to have a bank account because with $50, what do you need? You just take it in cash and you put it in a jar. Um, in the prosperity seminar I gave recently, I talked about this all very vividly, about my jar and my money. And I've never felt as wealthy and as completely content about everything as we did during that period of time. It lasted about 10 years. Um, but... I say that partly because I really wanted to just sort of say, you know, there, there is a reality that even in these modern times you can do this sort of thing. And I want to speak from that, that experience about the concept of renunciation because we all really learned a lot that has been the foundation of our spiritual life ever since. I, I say I would like to think I could go back to all of that. I'm older now, of course, and the body's not quite as spry as it used to be. But I, I think mentally... I never expected to, to have anything else. I always had the expectation in my life that as I got older, I would have less and less. You know, quite the contrary of the way the American system thinks, where people think as you get older and older, you want to accumulate, become comfortable, and then you have all these ideas. And in my mind, because I was living formally as a renunciate, um, I just assumed that the older I got, that I would have less and less and less and less. And I loved that thought. You know, I just, it just seems so free to, to come into this world and instead of acquiring attachments, to cut them all loose. But um, God had a different plan in store for us. It was not appropriate in this particular day and age to be so impoverished. I remember when uh, Swami Kriyananda came to San Francisco for a conference of spiritual leaders at that time. This was the 70s and you know, sort of the big heyday of all this 
energy. There were all these ashrams and this big thing going on all over the country. Or at least it seemed big to us because we were in the middle of it. And uh, so Amaji's car at that time, uh, we had uh, gotten into some Air Force um, surplus catalog system. I don't know how we got into it. I think later we found out that we were illegitimately in it, but nonetheless we'd gotten in it. And somebody had bought for $150 each two of these big Chevrolet cars. I don't know what year they were. One to cannibalize parts for the other one. And they had been Air Force cars, and you could faintly see the word Air Force where it had been painted out. So naturally, we called his car Air Force One. What else would we call it? Right? And it was just this big, old American gas-guzzling car. And even at that time, it was old because, I mean, the Air Force had relinquished it. It was fine. It got us around. It was big enough for a lot of us to be able to crowd in with Swami, which to us was the best advantage of it. It had a huge trunk for all our luggage. But at a certain point, Swamiji, we went to one of these conferences, and all the other... Um, leaders of different groups were driving better cars. You know, some even were driving like Cadillacs. That was before the big Rolls-Royce scandal, so it was a, Cadillac was the big thing. But Swamiji went home and went to the Ford dealership and brought a, bought a brand new Ford, which he then kept for a long time after that. And he made the simple statement that in America, if you're too poor, people don't respect you. He said, in India, the more poor you are, the more they respect you. But in America, if you're too rich, if you're into religion, they also don't respect you. But if you're too poor, they think there must be something wrong with your teaching. And in a sense, that's true, because this is a country of such abundance that if you can't generate a sort of basic level, then um, there must be something wrong with what you're doing, because there's so much money that flows around this country. So we sort of hit a more modest level. And then all of Ananda sort of started going into a new phase. For one thing, the monastic order um, dissolved, Many, many, almost all of us who had been living that life got married. Once you sort of enter into the householder mode, you kind of move into a different reality. It's just you, you're a, ma a different creature magnetically in the universe, and everything begins to work a little differently. Um, and so we, we had to start more internalizing our sense of renunciation. And I remember for myself the, the big uh, crisis I faced when... When I left the monastic order in order to uh, marry David, I moved away from the area of Ananda where Swami Kriyananda lives. Most of you understand that geography there it's, was Ayodhya. And that was, had all been monks and nuns. And I was one of the first of the monastics to move out from there to get married. So the monastery continued for a time um, afterwards, so I had to move away. And I went to live at the seclusion retreat where David was. And that was a very, very difficult thing for me because I had, from very early on, always lived right next door, essentially, to Swami. So after a time when the whole monastic system was really shifting, Swamiji saw that the geography wasn't going to be true anymore, and he invited us back. He suggested that there was a little cabin right near his house, and why didn't we move into there? Well, we went and looked at it, and everything being different now, it was just too humble. It was too small. I, as I sort of described it, David and I walked in there together, and his aura just filled the space and flattened me against the wall, and I just didn't really see how we could both live in there together. So unbelievably, we were going to have to say to Swamiji, we can't move back next door to you. And it was, I found it such a hard thing, but it was the truth. So he said, well, why don't you just build a house? Well, you know, David had a, a much greater flow of income than I'd ever imagined, but still it was, seemed like a pretty astonishing idea. Well, part of it was, I said, how will we pay for it? 
He said, well, you can just go out and teach. And this is how Swami tricked me. <laughs> so that's one aspect of the story, is that's how he tricked me and got me going. Uh, but the second part of it was, all of a sudden, from having imagined myself owning nothing and, and then hopefully as time goes on owning less, we were building a house. And so my way of relating to it, this is how my little subconscious worked, because it was a deep, deeply held conviction in my heart that as long as I was poor, I was guaranteed to be spiritual. I mean, I didn't really, I hadn't, wouldn't have articulated it, but it was just like, it was important to be poor. And so therefore to have a house was like the beginning of the road to perdition. I just didn't know where it would lead. So I tried as much as possible to obstruct the process. This again was not, not conscious, but I thought, well, if we are going to build a house, let's build it badly. And that will prove, you know, that we have the right relationship to it. My dear husband, David, is not nearly as neurotic as I am. And he's especially not at all neurotic in these ways. He has always just had a sense of energy. And he, he doesn't categorize it into all the little pieces that I've always categorized it, and I've learned a lot from him. To him, it's just energy. You just move it, and you do whatever's required, and that's that. He just doesn't even see it in all these different ways. So as many of you have heard me say, at a certain point in the process, he simply turned to me, and he said, if you're not going to help, then get out of the way. You know, David sort of saves it up, and then he gets it just <laughs> crystallized, and then he offers it to me, and I get it. But I had to really think about that for a long time, because you don't overcome something by doing it badly. And to dislike or hate or fear something is not the same as renouncing it. There's a great deal of difference. And so I had a great fear of becoming involved in the world in certain ways, which is it's good to have a healthy respect for delusion. But I simply wasn't operating in, to use Ganamata's uh, phrase to bring it back to this book, in the, in the condition appropriate to my state. That's how she uses it when she talks in there about the time when she just had that little tiny attic and she was still really upset and then this teacher, whoever it was, came and helped her recognize the attitude that was appropriate to her state. It was a very wonderful phrase. It implied many things that for her, this was her real next step and that was what was appropriate for her. And for me, my actual real next step was to break down my fears and to look at life a little more broadly and also think of it in terms of how we were serving Master, not just in terms of what I personally would have preferred. I still joke about it that if, you, if I were a pebble and you threw me in the air and I was able to magnetize myself to where I would belong, I think I would still come down behind the walls of a convent in some little cell, maybe with cold running water, maybe not. I remember being in Greece and coming to some of those little stone convents and Oh, I just found this little room. I mean, it was a little cold stone room with a, with a cold tap outside. And, oh, I loved it. I just loved being in there. And David just wanted to leave as fast as he could. I mean, he comes from the Maharaja school of renunciation, you know. I'm really on the other side. We found us kind of happy in the middle. But it's a good, you know, even using us as an extreme example. I mean, now I've integrated. I don't think about these things as much as I used to. But... All of that is the context, because we have all these different ideas in our minds about renunciation. And some people, such as myself, who have these strong monastic samskars, and many of you I know do too, you have this certain picture of it, and, and it either repels you or it attracts you, but the idea in your mind is that renunciation looks a certain way. And uh, 
Sister Gyanamata, if she was indeed St. Teresa of Avila in a past life, um, which it, it's interesting, I, I'm sure many of you have, this is a, a rumor that was never exactly confirmed, but is a very likely possibility that she was. At different times in my life, I became very well acquainted with Teresa of Avila, and just sometimes you just feel exactly the same vibration coming through this book. There's just a phrase or something, there's just something so much alike. But of course, Teresa of Avila was just the quintessential female renunciate and established convents. And when you read about her life, she did such, an, she did such a perfect job of creating a renunciate environment for those women. I mean, even little touches like, like the aesthetics of it. It was all exceedingly simple, but she put, she put a great deal of attention into making sure that it was harmonious and beautiful. And everything was white and brown, except the pottery, which was blue. So that you would be in this very, very barren environment, but then you'd have this beautiful bit of blue every once in a while. You know, just a little touch, just an understanding that just because it's simple and poor doesn't mean it, it, that, that beauty can't exist everywhere. You know, and, and it was harmless, a harmless little touch to, because God is also in that. But uh, in the picture that we have here of renunciation, Yanamata is very, very strong in her statements in this book. You know, I, I didn't understand that it wasn't enough to give up those things that were harmful. I had to give up every single desire. I had to become nothing except God's will. And then there's other um, paragraphs that are not in the Renunciation chapter but in other places in this same reading, you know, about desires and about sensuality. And she really goes, you know, the full route on that one. Um, just almost everyone's horror story about getting into a path like ours. I remember, charmingly, when I was teaching in Seattle on one of those tours to pay for our house, um, this wonderful uh, pair of sisters, girls maybe in their 20s or 30s, very um, extravagant, slightly earthy girls, you know, not, not the typical type of person. They were from Europe somewhere. One of them was named Eva, and I don't remember the other girl's name. And they just somehow, they stumbled into what we were doing, and they just got so excited. They just loved it. They, became, they came to every single program, and they were just getting so excited. And I would go to Seattle sometimes for three weeks at a time. And after about two weeks, early in the morning, I received this extremely excited call from Eva, I think. And she, she and her sister, they really needed to come over and see me as soon as possible. And I said, fine. And so they came over as soon as possible, and they had brought with them Whispers from Eternity, which they had brought, bought at one of our talks, which is Yogananda's book, of course, of poems and prayers. And they both sort of sat down, and they looked a little stricken. And they opened Whispers from Eternity, and they came to one, I don't remember which one, that said, save me from the desire, from the temptation of sex desire. And they said, is that what this teaching is really all about? <laughs> and they're just like, maybe this isn't for us. <laughs> so I did my best to sort of talk to them about those attitudes which are appropriate to your own level of development and you shouldn't get ahead of yourself. But I couldn't lie to them. I couldn't promise them. As Sister Gyanamata raises the question in one of her letters, you have, she writes to these two cousins, you have great faith that we can answer every question, but how can we answer this question? How can you have your cake and eat it too? That's what she said. And then she speaks of your cousin is standing at a fork, 
and is making certain choices. Either she will continue on the spiritual journey or she will jeopardize everything she has by her desire to also indulge other, um, it, the implication was inappropriate or adharmic um, appetites that were taking her away from the purity of her spiritual path. And Sister Gyanamata emphasizes that this is a tough choice. And if she's going to do it, she is, you can read between the lines that this woman has probably gotten herself into some very, very ticklish situation which was causing a lot of difficulty. It will take a lot of effort for her to get herself out of this, you know, and she will have to face the consequences of her behavior. But if she does, then she will have a glorious future, and if she doesn't, she will suffer a great deal because there is a kind of unequivocal reality going on here. And so when the masters, and when Sister Gyanamata and when Yogananda talk emphatically about these things, they're not talking um, for the sake of making our lives miserable. They're, they're simply telling us that if you want an unconditioned state of bliss, these are the things that you're going to have to conform to. But Gyanamata's perfect phrase those attitudes which were appropriate to my particular state. You know, and, and in, this, in reflecting on this, I was remembering a sermon that Swami gave while we were in Assisi um, this fall on the SRW pilgrimage that many of you, some of you went with us to Assisi for. Um, the scripture topic was from the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna says, um, he describes all the different ways in which you can follow the spiritual path, but he says the highest path is to be a yogi. Be thou, Arjuna, a yogi. This is a famous quote from the Bhagavad Gita, which I've heard interpreted many, many different ways. Excuse me, I... Which I've heard interpreted many different ways, but Swami's explanation of it was so much deeper and more interesting because he took that in a, in a, just expanded it in a very interesting way. The practice of yoga is, the, is to cooperate with the way the energy naturally flows in the body, you know, in the spine and in the subtle body through the chakras and to use the breath. And I mean, the specific practice of yoga is that you take the instrument that you have and you work with it in order to concentrate and elevate your consciousness. But then he, he, he extrapolated from there and said what, what this is really saying is, quite simply, the practice of yoga is to take who and what you actually are and to develop who and what you actually are. And so it became a very interesting um, discussion of the fact that you cannot progress except from with what you already have. There's just simply no other way to go forward. And it, it made that statement of Krishna so much more profound. You know, to be a yogi is to work with reality and to build upon reality. So when, we, when Sister Gyanamata makes these very unequivocal statements about what we have to do and this is the way it is, she's speaking of divine law. Ultimately, Superconsciousness demands that we transcend the physical plane. You know, when you're not talking about, when we're not talking about some precious desire of our own, we don't argue with that. We just accept it. I was so amused in the 
um, class that we finished before this one on the Hindu way of awakening, we spent weeks and weeks talking about the male-female dynamic, whether it was Shiva Shakti or, you know, uh, Brahma and his consorts. Just in endless ways we talked about all of the pairs of opposites. And everybody was completely with it until, until the chapter when Swami actually talked about men and women. Especially he said some very strong-minded things about women. And then I got, from a few people, women, I got this enormous reaction. And I, I finally, I, I just couldn't extricate myself from it. And I finally said, you know, when we were just talking about Shiva Shakti, you weren't so uptight. You know, we're still talking about the same thing. It's just now that we've brought it down to something that you can identify with more readily, suddenly you're, you feel threatened by it. But it's just the same. And so in this, we talk about the simple fact that the spiritual state we all aspire to transcends the physical. Now, think about that. If it transcends the physical, there's going to be some transition phase in here, isn't it? When we're having to work to transcend. And I just don't mean sex. I mean everything that has to do with the ego, the body, and material experience. Everything that we presently think of as what gives us comfort. And Gyanamata uses that phrase somewhere in there. I had to break the thought that my, the purpose of my life here was to have all these little comforts. And that's why she talked about so joyfully, I went to the, the ocean today and I realized I've broken my attachment to the ocean. You know, you would think, why would you need to break your attachment to the ocean? What she had broken was within herself the thought that her happiness would come from all these little things that she wanted. And, and that's, a, that's a very simple thought. But you can't fight that battle sort of globally all at once. Um, people often focus in on sexuality, and Swami's comment was just, you know, sex, of course, can make you crazy. So it is right up there with money and intoxicants as, as one of the big delusions. You know, wine, sex, and money. Are the, uh, and money represents power and worldly, you know, worldly force. Those are the big ones, because they can cause you to lose your discrimination faster than attachment to cookies. You know, you might really be enthusiastic about Haagen-Dazs, but it generally will not just flip your life over like, like other things can do. But nonetheless, it's only a matter of degree, and we're talking about what Swami describes quite simply as bodily imperatives. You know, there are many bodily imperatives, and Gyanamata touches it. She has that whole paragraph about sleep and about the delusion of sleep and the need for it. And what she's talking about is she's, she's systematically and carefully, through, at the level that's appropriate for her, she's looking at those things that still compel her and reflecting on them and trying to understand what is still binding me and how can I gradually untie the knots of what's holding me. But the only reason that you would even consider doing it is because there's greater freedom without it than there is in it. And she speaks, you know, of how even rich children with, with loving, understanding parents sometimes run away because they imagine that they will feel better if they have more freedom. And so she says, all of us have run away from our Heavenly Father because we imagine that we'll feel better if we have more freedom. From what? From natural law? From the way things are? 
But of course, we all have to find that out in our own way. We have to all go through the process. Um, yesterday and Sunday, on Sunday at Sunday service, the scripture reading was the prodigal son. And, the, you know, how far he's gone away from the divine life and he ends up eating the husks with the swine. And Gyanamata makes reference to that. I think it was in the letter about the cousins. You know, whether you will eat the husks with the swine, because in the prodigal, story of the prodigal son, he'd been reduced to such a state that he was feeding the pigs and the food he ate was no better than what the pigs were eating. You know, whether we, whether we in the name of freedom, will divorce ourselves so far from our inner bliss that compared to the bliss of our true nature, we're just eating the husks with the swine, or whether we will do the, the constant unrelenting work to break the delusion that we have in our mind that our joy comes from being able to just follow all of those egoic imperatives. Now, this is what renunciation really is, is the breaking of the delusion that this is where our happiness comes from. As she says also, there's no happiness in anything. No, nothing can give you happiness. I recall um, about a year and a half or two years ago, it was Christmas time, so it must have been two years ago, David and I just remodeled our whole, redecorated our whole apartment after 10 years. We just threw everything out, you know, ripped up the carpets and the furniture, and we just spent this huge amount of time and energy. It's only the second time in my life I've ever even thought about this sort of thing. And uh, finding just the right carpet, and it was this huge project to find just the right carpet. You know, we finally found the right carpet, and we ordered it, and it was delivered, and it, it was laid out, and it was just like, da-da, 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 da-da. And then there it was. You know, and I stood there and on, the, on the upper landing, and there it was. And it was an inanimate object. It had no consciousness, it had no power to, to, to give me anything, you know, and the pleasure of it, David Gamow's fond of joking, you know, the pleasure of things lasts me, you know, anywhere from four to seven minutes before you just realize it's just a thing. It can't do anything for me. I looked at the carpet and I, I looked sort of at it like this and I said, you can't love me back, can you? <laughs> you know, it's like there's just no energy coming there. It's just me going, pouring it out. It wasn't that I was so involved in it, but still there had been a little hope that it would make me happy for longer than it did because it was just an inanimate object. Gyanamata writes about it. Your happiness comes because you have a desire and it's fulfilled. And so there's this brief moment, as Swami describes it, you create the tension by having a desire. You know, you're fine. You conceive of a desire. You become tense because you want something. You fulfill it. There's a cessation of tension briefly so you feel better. And we call that happiness. But, but all that happens then is another thing comes up. When I tried to express the concept of renunciation to a relative of mine, and I said, you know, haven't you noticed that you desire things, and then when you get them, they don't fulfill you in the way that you hoped? And I mean, it, we sort of worked our way up to that, but I just really thought I had her in my hand. Yes, yeah, she said, that's why it's so important to keep on wanting new things. <laughs> which was the way she lived her life, you know, because she sensed that it didn't always fulfill her, so you had to keep on like this, right? But if you really want to be free, and Sister Gyanamata says, these teachings are designed for those who have turned their gaze towards self-realization. And each one of us also has to decide in a very honest way how much of their gaze they want to turn towards self-realization. 
But then you have to recognize that every single thing she says is true. Because sooner or later, we must overcome every delusion in our mind that tells us that our happiness comes from anything. It's a completely unequivocal, there is no, there is no bargaining, there's no margin, there's nothing on it. We have to overcome the thought that our happiness is dependent on anything. And so Sister says over and over again, imagine that everything that comes to you comes from God. And, and one develops an inner attitude no matter how you live. And this is where I was going back to, um, you know, just sort of the story of transition from the real protection of, of, of a monastic uh, situation to recognizing that it, we've got to internalize it. And it has to be a question, householder or renunciate, as she says, it doesn't matter. The essence of the spiritual path is the recognition that self-realization means that we overcome every single imperative of the ego and of the body and live entirely identified with the soul. But we have to do it step by step in, in the way that's appropriate to our state. But don't resist the concept merely because it scares you. You know, and don't try to lessen the teachings and also don't try to take on teachings that are not appropriate to your state. You know, many times people read the spiritual path and if they have complexes about sexuality, you can become really crazy about sexuality if you add an overlay of renunciation on top of it. In fact, Swamiji, I remember in one conversation, he, he said once, he said, sex causes more problems in devotee marriages than anything else because people develop such complexes about it. And I remember when one of the monastics was married and then was essentially trying to maintain celibacy within the marriage, Swamiji just said simply, you can't have it both ways. Either you accept that which is appropriate for the life you've chosen, or you don't choose that life. Now, he was not talking about unbridled passion, but he was talking about once you make that union, you have to follow through with what is natural to that state of life. And so we have to not be so egotistical or lacking in common sense, and common sense is a very important part of this, that we strive to do things that we can't do. Even when I was living in that little trailer, I knew what my bottom line was. One of my friends actually tried to live without her good heater. And I just said, there's no way. There's just no way in the world that I can live without a good heater. I have to have a good heater. In fact, I had a little... um, song that I used to sing to my heater because I was so fond of my heater. I won't sing it to you because it was really something that one only does in absolute privacy, but, you know, I loved my heater. And I could read about Francis, you know, living without heat and go to where Francis uh, went to receive the stigmata at Laverna and see this cold stone that he sat on and spent hours there, you know, even in the winter. And when I go in the spring and summer, I find it almost unbearably cold. And I just say really simply, not yet. (laughs) You know, Lord, maybe someday you want me to get this one, but not this lifetime. You know, this is our deal. We can can handle some things, but not this one. You know, and but there's other things that are just, they're mine. And, And you just know they're yours. They're just, they're certain things that come to you and you just know they're yours and you've got to do them. And that's what you have to listen to really profoundly when you see that this is a battle worth fighting and it's a battle you have to fight. And you have to be, as she said, you can't think just a little bit of bliss absolves you of the struggle. 
This is a constant battle that has to be waged day after day after day. And you have to ask the question, as she says in there, you have to stop asking the question, what about me? What about me? What about me? Now, there's another aspect of this that you also have to appreciate. The whole path of self-realization assumes that you're not neurotic. Okay? It's not, the, the path of self-realization is not for people who are crazy. And, you know, in the early years of Ananda, we would have people who were mentally imbalanced because they would, would be attracted to our community because, you know, such people live outside the normal walls. And, and devotees also live outside the normal walls. So they would, like, feel the certain kinship. They could kind of sense that there was also a kind of, uh, you know, outside-the-box kind of energy going on. And at first, we used to think that we could help people like that. And I'm not talking about, about, you know, about real psychiatric cases. But we gradually realized that we were the worst thing in the world for such people. Because this is not a way of cutting, shortcutting the necessity to become, ego, to develop the ego in a strong way. This is once you've got a basically functioning ego, um, what, what are you going to do next? And it's a very important transition, and this is the psychology, spirituality side of it, because psychology is so popular these days, and, and the psychological approach to happiness and well-being is so all-pervasive that we don't even know that's what we're thinking. But you know, there's a lot of, when you read her, she says, you must learn to, to suffer patiently and silently, she says. And you know, even I read those things and all of the other things that come into your head about how you need to learn to stand up for yourself and assert your needs and tell the world what you want and so on like that. Yes, but once you have proven that you're capable of doing that, then you have to ask yourself, is there any future in it for me? And so you can't be trying to be spiritual because you're afraid to be strong, but you have to recognize that that kind of strength will only make me so happy and now I have to go on to something else but you have to work as a yogi with what you actually are. And, and so when you reach a certain point, and of course you sometimes need some people to help you interpret, you have to decide what is really going to make me happy from this point forward. And so there, you know, there's questions in there like, how do you get people to change? There's a, a, somebody wrote a letter, how do I get so-and-so to change their attitude? What does she say? By kindness by prayer vibration, by seeing their highest potential at all times. Does she say, confront them, talk to them, tell them your needs, stand up for what you want? She never says anything like that because she's, she's working from a higher plane. She's working from the plane of the devotee and, and the real way that consciousness is transformed. Now, we can't always live up to that. I always have often said to you all, and some of you have heard me talk about, I use a, an illustration of an experience I had with David when I got very mad at him over something unimportant. And I, I watched myself sort of choose how high up the food chain of spirituality I could go from Christ-like forgiveness to having an absolute fit in public, you know, and bashing him with my purse. And I just sort of... I sort of stood between the two alternatives and I tried to ask myself as a yogi, you know, what's real in this moment? And I didn't get all the way to Christ-like forgiveness 
but I, nor did I bash him with my purse in a public place. You know, I sort of hit, I think I was, I was to the upper side of the middle, but I never lost contact with the fact that Christ-like forgiveness was where I was going. And I, I consciously compromised with my full potential. And so as renunciates, even if Gyanamata puts out, you know, this is how it ought to be, don't ever resist that. Don't ever resist that. Don't ever, ever, ever resist the potential, but apply it to your life with common sense. Otherwise, it becomes just ego, or it becomes a way of avoiding what the real, what's the, the state of consciousness actually appropriate to your state of development. Do you see what I mean? But don't be afraid either. Because when that is appropriate to your state of development, it will seem easy to you when the time comes. And God will not send you a test bigger than you can really handle. Although, as Mother Teresa said, sometimes I wish he didn't trust us so much. you know. But he, he will only give you what you really can handle, especially if with humility and sincere effort uh, you respond accordingly. There was one last thought. Oh, yes, there was one other thing in this section that I thought was really lovely and relates to another theme that we've had, which is the theme of how do we accept ourselves as we see ourselves in relationship to the potential. Sister Gyanamata talks about reading the book, The Saints That Move the World, and reading the life of St. Francis of Assisi and learning things that she didn't know, and how, as she read about those great saints, she felt that all that she had offered to God, as she described, was like a teaspoon of, of water compared to the great ocean outside her window at Encinitas. Now, it's very important when you read that to not dismiss her own self-perception. So we say, oh, well, she's such a great saint. But that doesn't matter. She herself felt that compared to what she was reading, she was a teaspoon of water compared to an ocean. So that's not dissimilar to the way we might feel when we're reading about Sister Gyanamata and thinking about the power and the simplicity and the clarity that she brought to the spiritual path compared to the somewhat less than that that some of us bring to the path, you know? A little bit more confusion, a little more interest in videos and various things that she probably wouldn't have done. Um, but then she says, but she was so thrilled to, to, to know that such spiritual heights were possible that she says she wandered about the hermitage in a dream of happiness. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Because she was just so thrilled by the, by the, the, the fact that spiritual greatness was possible, that her littleness by comparison was not her, her point of focus. What did she do? She forgot herself and just concentrated on the presence of the divine, the possibility of the divine, her own divine future. And so that's our attitude when we read about these great souls. Instead of suddenly shifting the attention from these great souls to our little self and asking the question which she warns us about, the danger of the renunciate is that we become very selfish. And the question we're always asking is, what about me? What about me? What about me? You know, forget about me. If you read about a great saint whose power transcends anything you could ever imagine doing, be thrilled by it. Be thrilled that human beings can reach such heights of greatness and just delight in it and just don't worry about you. You'll get there by and by. 
you know? And in the meantime, just take the baby steps that are asked of us, and we'll just keep, you know, you could empty the ocean with a teaspoon. It'll take a while. But just keep at it. And when it's done, it'll be a great thing to have done. And sitting and sobbing, what about me? And why don't I have a bigger spoon? We'll just delay the process. It won't do anything for you. And, and, and above all, as she describes, be exceedingly vigilant to the, to the power of renunciation. And what we're renouncing is simply the ego's little desire to think about itself. And, and above all things, that's what we're renouncing, is just self-concern. Self-forgetfulness is the essence of spiritual growth. And that's what Gyanamata says over and over again. Just forget about yourself. Forget how you feel. Just do what you're supposed to do. And that's, again, a, a, a dividing line between what you might call psychology, which wants to always contemplate how you feel and try to understand how you feel and see, see, seek the origins of how you feel. And I don't mean to make fun of it because it's very beneficial many times. And you, and you waffle back and, back and forth and at some stages of your life you really need to do it. I mean, intermittently. But, but the fundamental concept is that you look at the limitation and that somehow you'll get free of the limitation by studying the limitation. Whereas the fundamental concepts of spirituality is you look to the light. And she describes in there talking about um, the specific issue was negative spirits or dark spirits. But she says quite simply, darkness cannot live where God is present. And if you concentrate your attention on the divine, then there's no way that any darkness can get in, no matter how long it's been there. So no matter how limited and confused we are, if we can simply wrest ourselves away from a preoccupation with it and genuinely put our consciousness on something else. But this is the renunciation of ego because the ego wants us to be concerned with itself. And what we have to renounce above all is that simply that desire, that, that, that wonderful, wonderful interest in the story of me, you know, <laughs> which just goes on and on and on story of me. Where does it take you? To another chapter. You know? Well, um, why don't we take a break? It's a little bit early for a break, but let's take a short break and then we can come back and, and work with specific sections. Okay, let's take 10 minutes. It's 25 after. Um, Someone asked me a question during the break that I wanted to start by just answering it a little bit. She was asking the question, how can you tell when it's common sense? How can you tell when it's the ego? Essentially, the, the real question is, how hard do you push yourself? I remember many years ago that question was asked to Swami in a real simple way. How much discipline is enough discipline? And he says, you should discipline yourself as, as much as you can, as long as you can do it joyfully. And the point at which it ceases to be joyful, it's too much, and you should back off. Now, bear in mind, joy in that sense is, more, is a more profound word than just as long as it's easy or as long as you feel real happy doing it. What he meant more was um, joy on the level of a profound sense of satisfaction. And because what you don't want to get into is you don't want to get into the thought that the spiritual path is painful and the more painful it is, the better it is, or that God really wants you to suffer or that the spiritual path is just so arduous, because if you get in that attitude, you won't stay on it, because it won't be any fun. 
So, but nonetheless, oftentimes we're doing things that are a little scary for us or a little hard for us or a little, you know, stressful. But there's stress on this level and there's great power and satisfaction on the other level. So as long as you can tune into some part of you that really feels powerfully happy that you're doing it, then that's how far you should push yourself. And when you just realize that all you're feeling is discouraged and sad and oppressed and tortured, that's too much. And that's how you sort of discern that which is appropriate to your state. You know, and for Sister Gyanamata, it was to be happy with the little... And, you know, she talks about that situation where all she had was two addicts and one was cobwebby and she put up a sheet and that's where she kept her clothes in this little cot. And, and then she says, in Seattle. I mean, this was her own home. <laughs> you just like, you wonder, what was she talking about? Yeah, it was in her own home that that was her situation. What created that? Who knows what created it? She doesn't really regale you with a lot of details, but, you know, so there could be a certain justifiable sense of outrage, but not for her, because whatever comes from God is what you should have. And also, Rick and Barbara and I were talking, too, in the break about how um, Gyanamata's consciousness was so, so clear because there was just so little in it. You know, it was, she was so close to liberation, she was free, that, that every, when, when it's a perfectly white sheet, you know, one little tiny speck really shows up and you can just go right to it. Every time there was the slightest aberration in her consciousness, it was very obvious to her because her consciousness was so calm. For most of us, there's a lot of stuff going on. And so it's more like a symphony orchestra of dissonances sometimes. And so you can't really always just tell which instruments are going off. So it's not um, appropriate necessarily for us to be so um, oriented about all the little tiny things. In the break, too, we were talking about uh, with someone else about the, just the fact that sometimes we'll say, I'm going to do something, we just can't do it. And the question in that case was, how many cookies shall I eat? And um, Yogananda emphasized, and it's a very important point, he said, above all, you need to keep a positive flow of energy going. Your positive magnetism is what gives you the power to attract um, grace and also gives you the, attracts the energy to keep you going. So you, you need to keep your positive magnetism, which comes from your positive attitude and your positive expectations. If you continually attempt to do things that you can't do, then you begin to develop a sense of your own self as a failure and a kind of discouragement about the whole process. So he phrased it by saying, if the battle is too big for you, run away from it. Or phrasing it differently, choose your battles carefully. You know, choose those things where you can generate a positive flow of energy. Because that positive flow of energy will give you strength to eventually work with the others. Don't worry, you'll get to it. But it's much more important to be inwardly correct in your consciousness than it is to do any specific thing. And, you know, when Swamiji asked Master about his... Swamiji spoke to Master about his own attachment to good food. Master answered, he said, oh, don't worry about it. When ecstasy comes, everything goes. But he was also saying, it's, that's not really the level on which you really need to be concerned. 
The greater concern is what your inner consciousness is. And we were talking about the lives that we live are very complicated. And we have homes and wardrobes and cars and families and just um, and jobs. We just have many complicated things that you can't, you can't create a great deal of external simplicity because there's just too much going on. So you have to, you have to work much more with renunciation of your inner attitudes. And, and this is where Gyanamata gives us, again, the perfect keys. Accept everything that comes to you as if it were coming from God, as coming from God. So that means the new car, the family, the house, the, the wardrobe, the need for it, and the loss of it. Accept everything that comes to you as coming from God. And that's a much more central way of dealing with things. You just deal with it. But then she also says, when she was talking to the woman, again, the context had to do with experiences in meditation. But she also was saying, Yogananda, Master, gave you the right instruction. He said, resist it. And, and resist is a very important word when we're talking about renunciation because he didn't say, overcome it. You know, that's the kind of dogmatic um, hell or heaven kind of thinking that really is not the path of self-realization. The path of self-realization, Swami uses the word very often, is directional. From where you stand as a yogi, working with what's true, you move in the right direction. And we can't always overcome things, but all that the guru asks of us is that we at least resist them. In other words, we don't capitulate completely. Swamiji himself talked about various periods in his life when he when he was unable to prevent his wrong behavior, but he said he never stopped resisting it mentally. Right? So even though he, he, he found himself doing things he really did not want to be doing, he never stopped resisting it internally. You see how important that is? And just that is enough, because that keeps your awareness always that there's some place that you're going. And so where you are is not as important as whether you know that you're going somewhere. That's why Gyanamata being so happy that these great saints existed is such a wonderful model to us. We can be so happy about the fact that someday we will be in unconditional bliss. And right now, even though we find ourselves doing all kinds of egoically based things, inwardly we resist it just a little bit. And resist may mean not that you even judge it, but that you don't completely identify with it. You know, you just don't completely identify with um, your sexuality or your um, food or your sleep or, or your, your laziness or our laziness or our anything. I want to put myself right in there with it. We resist it merely by never forgetting that this is a temporary state. And, and Swamiji's suggestion in something he wrote recently that is, uh, must have been one of the Bible, Gita, he said, if you're drawn to outward pleasures of various kinds, he said, try to use them to increase your inner sense of joy. And that's, see, that's another way. It's just like you, you don't turn it by just pushing it away. You just turn it slowly because this is appropriate to our state for most of us is that we're not celibate and we're not that austere and we're, you know, we're not lots of things that the scriptures say we ought to be. But inwardly, we resist completely identifying with it. That doesn't mean that we don't 
engage with enthusiasm because you don't want to, you don't get out of something by doing it badly. I wasn't going to get out of the house, owning a house, by building an ugly one. You know, if we had to do it, we had to do it beautifully. But you do it with the, from the inner energy of doing it, not from the idea of, oh, when the house is perfect, we'll be so happy. You just do it from the inner energy of now we have to build a house. You know, now I have to be a married person. Now I have to raise children. Now I have to earn money. Now I have to redecorate, you know. Now I have to buy a new car. You watch Swami Kriyananda, who's such an important example to us. If he has to do something, he just does it. I mean, he finished the Bible, the first volume of the Bible, Gita Commentary, and he celebrated by getting new rugs for his house. Do you know? It's just, he, he just, that was what he intuitively felt that he ought to do. He was calling and the great rug merchant of Assisi, you know, <laughs> who's, who, you know, who sees, sees Swamiji coming and bought, the, you know, he bought a set of beautiful rugs for his house. And it's just, he has a house. He wants to make it warm and lovely. He has to live in it. People come. You have to do it correctly. To make it cold and not harmonious is not necessarily being more of a renunciate. Because you could be more attached, you know, to that cold, ugly house than he would ever be to a beautiful one. It's just you make it beautiful, but you do it inwardly for God. That's what we're talking about. Because in this day and age, as as Master himself said, Francis was devoted to Lady Poverty. Um, Master was devoted to Lady Simplicity. And simplicity is a great deal about your inner consciousness. Does that make sense? Any, any, now, are there any things in this section that people would like to raise and have us talk about? There's others I could pull out that I loved, but does anyone else have a paragraph or two? Yes, Sharon. Sure. You know, one thing I loved um, was where she talked about Satan. Uh-huh. I just felt like that was probably the clearest yeah. and most... Remind us of the page. Um, okay. But I know exactly what you're talking about, where she answers the letter and yeah. yeah, and talks about how Satan exists on a certain level, I mean, but not on others. Oh, yeah. Um, page 141. Uh-huh. Um, on the highest plane of all, there is nothing but undifferentiated spirit, God. Here, Satan does not appear, but neither do men and women. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I've heard that phrase, you know, the undifferentiated spirit. Uh-huh. Right. You really get it. As long as there's duality, there's got to be. But as, as long as we're conscious of, of the opposites, then here we are. What Swamiji was saying something on a tape that I was listening to recently, and he said, um, a vi- the villain in a play, and he talked about Iago in uh, Shakespeare's play, I guess, Othello. Othello. And he said, Iago was not good in the sense of it wasn't good for Iago, but Iago was good for the play. <laughs> you know, he made the play good. And so to, to make a very good villain makes the play good. That's, and, and once we're in this world of opposites, and that's where she also goes on to say, it's possible that man would not have much strength if it was not for his long fight with, fight with Satan on this plane. Strength of character is developed by the fight that must be waged. 
And so we also see that it's that polarity, and this is, goes back to our whole discussion about renunciation. In order to attain the state of unconditioned bliss, you have to earn it. You have to become powerfully aware of the choice that you're making. And you have to do that by a constant cycle. And you know, she emphasizes it over and over, a constant cycle of effort and disappointment and then effort again and then disappointment and then effort again. I mean, for incarnations. Until finally we're free. Is it really worth it? Selling my birthright for a mess of pottage, as they say. I loved a story that Yogananda told of... Um, he was with Dr. Lewis, and he, Dr. Lewis, they were, they were in the car, and it was sort of at dusk, and you know how beautiful a house can look with the little sort of light radiating from the window, and you have this mental picture of how warm and loving it must be inside that house. And you, just, you have all these thoughts that just come to you, and Dr. Lewis was riding in the car with Master, and he was looking at a house like that, and Master could feel his consciousness going out in romantic attachment to the image he was seeing. And Master turned to Dr. Lewis and he said, Doctor, he said, is it worth reincarnating for? (laughs) And Dr. Lewis sort of came out of me and said, no, sir. (laughs) Meaning, if we start thinking that I would be happier if I had that, then we get trapped. You know, I I was told once that Haridas uh, spent years just sort of um, imagining all the different things that were possible and um, that he wanted. And then just really very steadily really looking at each of those desires really in the face and asking himself, you know, using his discrimination to ask himself, would this really satisfy me in the way that I think it would? Now sometimes your heart says yes. (laughs) But nonetheless, it's a very, very, very powerful exercise. And it prepares you, actually, to have more in your life rather than less. Because when your spirit is free, um, you, have, you, you, you have more and you have more joy. And she, she mentions that in here when she talks about resentment, when she says resentment is the... Um, uh, resentment blocks the capacity for anything good to come to you. It creates a dissonant magnetism that doesn't allow good things to come to you. I wanted to find, well, I can't find it exactly, but she also says when, when a woman was writing to her, presumably a woman, about a desire that was unfulfilled, in essence. And Gyanamata said, you should pray, and the more, you should try to attune yourself to a higher level, but the more you try to attune yourself to the spirit, the more you will automatically want those things which, were good, which are good for you. And then the more likely your prayers will be answered. Do you see? It was such an interesting sort of combination of thoughts because we pray and pray and want God to answer us, bring us what we want, but God won't bring it to us if it's not really in our best interests. So instead of just praying more and more for what isn't in our best interests, she says, attune yourself to a higher vibration and then your prayers will automatically be answered more because they will be for things that God will want to answer you automatically desire. Again, turn from the dark, look to the light, and the light then will take you everywhere you need to go. Well, any other questions or comments or ideas? I can keep turning pages and finding my favorites. Yes. She's a literary writer. She's explaining similar 
And then you agreed, you said. <laughs> she, she really wrote it out, just exactly. Um, I loved this phrase, too. This was just, this was in the one where she said, a few days of happiness does not mean that the fight is over. And then she says, take firm hold of the guru's robe and let nothing unclench your fingers. <laughs> I often have visualized myself... For some reason, I just sort of imagine Master going away from me, and I always hold, hold on to his ankle. <laughs> That's sort of like the picture of, of just like the last thing that you can grasp. But that image of letting nothing unclench your fingers. I mean, it's such a vivid image, isn't it? And, and you also see, when she says things like that, she's recognizing that it's not always glorious success. But if you just get a hold like that. Yogananda in The Path, Swami quotes... Master is referring to a certain disciple as being like a mouthful of hot molasses. Um, he said, too hot to swallow, but too sticky to spit out. And I often think to myself, if nothing else, just be like, a, like to the guru like a mouthful of hot molasses. You may be just too much of a mess for him to go anywhere with you, but you're not going to unclench your fingers. <laughs> and therefore, he's simply stuck with you. Swami tells a charming story about some disciple of Yogananda's that he was so exasperated with, I, Swami just told the story recently, I'd never heard it, that Master more or less carried the man downstairs from Mount Washington and threw him off the property. And the disciple got up, brushed himself off, and walked back in. And Yogananda didn't stop him, you know, because he wouldn't unclench his fingers. So you have that undercurrent in Gyanamata's writing of, of just a very simple understanding of what, it, what she's really asking of us and very direct instructions about how to achieve it. And so meditate on these things. You know, Even if, like the man that Swami talked about in the path again, who drank whiskey and practiced Kriya at the same time, Kriya beads in one hand, whiskey bottle in the other, and uh, he said, well, I can't do anything about my drinking, but at least I can do something positive. And for some time, whether it was years or months, I don't know, he simply did both. He would literally drink a little whiskey and do a little Kriya. Until one day, the, the attraction of the Kriya was greater than the attraction of the whiskey, and he just put it down. So don't ever think when you're not able to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish that that justifies your putting down your Kriya beads or unclenching your fingers. You know, the fight is not necessarily to overcome that. The fight is to not let go. That's why our orientation should not be toward our limitations, but toward what the solution to them is. You see, and that's why on Sunday when I was talking about take God with you, you know, I was using the image of angels, but they're going with you anyway. It's just a question of whether you pretend they're not there because you're embarrassed or whether you just accept that this is where I am, but I'm also going to just grab a hold of the robe and never unclench my fingers. Meditate on that. That's just such a great image. I love it. I adore it. That's actually a very important point, Doris. And she makes that point all the way through by implication. And that was, that was direct also. I am who I am by your grace. I am the vehicle through which you flow. I mean, everything about her life is asking for Guru's grace. Um, 
I've had that experience, and I still, I'm not clear enough on it to be able to put it into words. I've described an aspect of it, but the other aspect of it is when I finally actually ask for help, I almost always get help immediately. But it, it really takes a long time to really ask for help because it will work. <laughs> so you don't really want to ask for help. You really, you really don't ask for help until you really are ready to let it go. And there's this, such a perverse pleasure in the ego, no matter how... That's the, that's the intuition I've had. I've had it three times, where I could just suddenly see that even though I thought I, something that I was doing was terrible, I still enjoyed it. And, and then I, I've had this little moment of transition where I just suddenly saw that I wasn't enjoying it, and in that moment I actually prayed to be freed of it, and in that day I would be freed of it. It's happened to me three times in my life. And it's just, it was just so dramatic. And it's, it's sort of like, because it's so fleeting, and as soon as I see that it's not pleasurable, I can't remember that it was, but I remember that I thought it was. This, the satisfaction of the ego, being angry, being jealous, being mad at other people, being feeling superior, you know, whatever your own particular list is. It's a big list. And we hate those feelings, and yet we actually also enjoy them. They're familiar, and there's a certain rush. You know, just, I don't know. And when you genuinely really don't want it, you will really ask God to take it away from you, and then he will take it away from you. So that's what I was saying, I think, last Sunday or the Sunday before, was concentrate on trying to not want it anymore. Just really deeper and deeper. Why, what, what am I getting from this? Why do I still cling to this? Just show me how to really let go. Show me how to surrender myself completely. And that's, you know, Yanamata, you practice surrendering all your little desires so that you can surrender your great big ones too. You know, practice where it's easier. Okay, any other thoughts or comments? I loved this one too of, let's see, where did he say this? When she, he was talking about... Um, Please take others into consideration in making your decisions. This is the one when she talks about don't always think about yourself. Just a very simple advice to view the plans of the group from the standpoint of the others, not just yourself. It's a very very simple statement that almost can go by. But when I was meditating on that one in particular, I was thinking just how often in every situation we ask ourselves first, well, what do I want? instead of asking just like, where is the flow of energy and what, what's trying to happen? I've mentioned to some of you that Swamiji said, and I may be putting way too much energy on this, but five of us, two couples and Swamiji, were on a holiday together last May, last uh, October, last November, maybe just recently. And uh, uh, somehow at the end of the six days we spent together, Swamiji spoke with surprising exasperation about the fact that every time we went to any restaurant or went anywhere to eat, four people would order the same things and one would always stand out. One would always order something else. And it's like, what difference did it make on a certain level? But somehow that just stayed in the corner of my mind because all four of the people who are with him are extremely independent-minded and sometimes to a fault, that I, I just realized that I never thought 
to just ask the question, view the plans of the group from the point of view of others. Now, of course, nobody needed to be reassured to know that the omelet was good and we should all have the omelet. But still, it somehow I felt like it was like he was using a very trivial example to try to put into the minds, especially of the four of us, that it doesn't, that the best thing is not always your point of view. You know, even in small matters, that sometimes it's just much better to just go along with the energy as it's going instead of always presenting your analysis of it. And, how, and I've certainly seen that in many group situations at Ananda, where I've been sometimes blessed. Most of the time I'm the mouth that's being independent, but on some occasions I've actually stood back and watched the energy of the independent one and seen that whereas that can be a value, sometimes it's just much better to view the whole situation from the whole point of view and not really feel that you have to just have whatever your thought in it was. Just very simple advice about how to keep yourself where you need to be. View everything that comes as coming from God. Also, she has this one here, which is one of her favorite. She speaks in this letter to Master, on page 136, The one perfect thing in my life if I ever felt a little human wish for something I could not have. This question was immediately presented to my soul. What did you come for? The answer was always for God alone. Now she was talking about moving into the ashram. But you can actually ask yourself, I realize, that question about your whole incarnation. If some desire is there and it's not going to come to you, Discipline yourself by asking yourself the question, what did I come for? Was I really born so that I could have this, this dress, this new car, this particular apartment, this relationship? You know, did I really incarnate? Do I really want my incarnation to be defined by this? I remember at a certain point when Swamiji dropped out of a lot of practical things at Ananda Village, I mean, from being involved in a lot of mundane things. Um, a number of years ago. I can't remember the exact context, but he said he felt his life sort of slipping away from him, and he felt when he died, his epitaph would be, he paid his bills. You know, that just life was just being reduced down to just the most mundane level of things, and that wasn't why he came. So again, meditate in your own heart. Why did I come? Why did I incarnate? And maybe you will know that there are certain life experiences that you have a profound desire to have. And you just have to say to Divine Mother, well, you know, these things are really strong in me. And you either have to fulfill them or give me some kind of power I don't presently have to overcome them. But nonetheless, on a day-to-day basis, when you're going to fall into grief because of desires that aren't going to be fulfilled, just ask yourself the question, what did I come for? And I, don't, I know it's not an easy answer, but it gives you at least something to do instead of just railing against a cruel fate. What did I come for? What do I really want? I love myself to think about um, dying. I've always loved death. It's about dying and having what everyone talks about is your life review. And it's very, very helpful to weigh things in the context of, do you really want to be standing there in front of God and Guru? you know, in the divine light at death and have to sort of explain this one. (laughs) 
I have in my mind the sound of this man named Dr. Ritchie, who wrote the book Return from Tomorrow, which is one of the most magnificent death and return stories. It's a fabulous story. We try to keep it here in the boutique. If not, you can get it at East West. And he died of the flu at the age of 21 and, of course, came back from it. But he had been a very selfish lad, he described himself as, very selfish. And uh, he found himself in the presence of Jesus in a 360-degree movie of every experience of his life, from being born to the present moment. And uh, Jesus asked him, what have you done with your life? And he kept sort of trying to say, I'm only 21. This isn't a fair question. (laughs) And Jesus kept asking it. And he looked around, and he was quite distressed by what he saw because he saw just so much selfishness all around him. And then he saw one incident that looked a little better, some Eagle Scout, something or another. This all happened on a... And, and Dr. Ritchie's from the South. He has a slight accent. And he, he describes how, in front of Jesus, he kind of like reached over to like, like point out this one incident, also in the hope that he could block some of the other things <laughs> like this. <laughs> trying to justify himself. And instantly he knew that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And then Richie says, the Savior was amused. (laughs) I just love that. The Savior was amused. (laughs) And he realized at that point that maybe he ought to just surrender to what was happening. (laughs) And everything changed from that point. And Christ was able to help him because he was no longer trying to protect himself. He was willing to, to hear what was being shown to him and being told to him telepathically from Jesus. So it's, it's a lovely thing. I mean, she puts it, what did I come for? But you also say, as um, Daniel Brinkley also talks a lot about that, you will have to experience the consequences of all your actions. And so if you're about to do something that's really going to hurt people or not help people, he says in that state you, you experience the complete intensity of whatever you've created. And as Daniel said, his first life review, he'd been a real bad man, and it was really painful. His second, because he's died three times. His second, he said he'd done so much good work, it was really fun. You know, he said they just whizzed whiz through the bad part and got to the good part really fast, and it was, it was just such an incentive to stay in the light, because in that, in that state, it's also clear to us. Put yourself in that state. That's how you fight temptation, whatever your temptation might be. Your temptation can be really small. And I just had this ridiculous little incident just, just yesterday of, I just, I, I knew I needed to spend some money to help someone. And you know, David and I have been traveling a lot and we have to travel some more and it's like I'm trying to be real frugal. And, uh, I, but I knew that I needed to spend some money to help this person. It, just, it, was, a, it was an act of friendship. I had to spend it and I didn't. And I drove down the street, and I was three miles down the street. I had to make a U-turn and go all the way back, you know, and spend the money because it was just not right. And, and you, just, you just have to become very conscientious about whatever it is. If you've messed it up, you just have to go back and make it right as fast as you can and just not ignore that little voice. And if you just make a habit of that, then, oh, you feel so free. Swamiji once made the very interesting remark, He said, all this teaching about self-acceptance and so on, he said, the only way to have true self-acceptance is to have a clear conscience. That's a really interesting statement, isn't it? In other words, unless 
you live in harmony with the light, you will always feel a little uncomfortable about yourself. Come on, guys, let's get real. We can affirm all we want, but living in the light is what makes you feel fine. Everything else makes you feel a little dissonant, and it ought to. That doesn't mean you should be down on yourself for all the reasons we've talked about, but there's no shortcut. Just do your best. Yes? Oh, yes. Isn't that an interesting one? She said harmony, yes. But then one question that I had was, um, if you ask the question, you know, what did I incarnate for? And we all know that essentially it's incarnation by God. Uh-huh. Then can that, can your purpose not change? I mean, how, if you, if you incarnate for something very specific, usually most people incarnate for something very specific to accomplish, or is that something that could change Um, in other words, do we have a specific mission? Do we have a specific means by which we're supposed to accomplish that goal? Um, I'm going to just speak from my impression of what I believe to be true. Uh, I think w- the, the mission we have is to... S- the, way, the way Swamiji has talked about the cosmic blueprint for our lives. It's more like a direction of energy. And, and, and how that energy actually manifests, Swami wrote this in something that he's written recently. The way that, that, the way that energy actually manifests is much more fluid than we mostly think because it's the energy that was the specific purpose. In, 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 our, in our case, for example, to uh, help build Ananda, to serve master, to serve, to realize God by serving master through the particular channel that he's given us. And I mean, I'm speaking to you as a, you know, a life member. Um, it's obvious that your career and your path to God realization is through serving Ananda. Now, do you have to serve this way versus this way? I think not. I think, I think we have so much karma that we can learn our lessons in many different ways. <laughs> I know Swamiji made that comment once when a woman asked him if the man that she was with was the one for her. And Swami answered her more delicately than he said to me afterwards. But what he said essentially was she has so much karma there can be many for her. You know, it's just like she could learn, she has so many lessons to learn, she can learn any kind, any number of lessons with any number of people. And she, he essentially said very few people have so little karma that they just have a few choices left. Or even more than that, um, circumstances mutate con- constantly by all the things that happen. Now, of course, it might all be karmically destined, but um, one should persevere with the vision that you feel attuned to, but also one should persevere with, rea- with realism and recognizing that it's really the consciousness that is the issue, not the particular form it takes. Now, that has to be conditioned by the fact that maybe the consciousness you need to develop in this life might be perseverance or stick-to-itiveness or determination in the face of of failure. Um, Or it could be flexibility or broad-mindedness. So you have to just pay attention to what life is telling you. But I don't think 
very many of us only have one thing to do. And I also very, had to very simply accept that even if we did, we're not necessarily going to accomplish it. And therefore, we have to find something new to accomplish. Otherwise, we get too discouraged. So if, if the main event doesn't seem to be happening, we need to become dynamic somewhere rather than becoming discouraged because the main event isn't happening. I certainly have felt in many instances that it would have been great if I could have done that, but I, I just didn't. And maybe it, quote, was there to be done, but I just wasn't able to. And so now I need to make the best of what's happened next. So that's the way I've personally dealt with it, and I think it's a valid way to deal with it, because anything else makes you too sad. And if you become too sad, then you lose everything. I remember at a very critical juncture, someone asked Swamiji once, is this a good or a bad thing to do? It seemed like there was a lot at stake. Swami said, it's completely neutral. He said, what you make of it yourself is what matters. You know, so you can find God in this circumstance or that one. It depends on whether you put out the energy to make this a divine experience, not what position you find yourself in. That's everything comes from God. Does that answer the question? A little bit? Well, yeah, I guess it's a tough question. I think that, I think um, when you, uh, it almost seems as if you have to address the consciousness that you're trying to achieve, and then will this particular road right. bring you into that right. state of harmony, or that state of consciousness, right. or the quality? Sometimes you just have to kind of get, open that up to the divine. We don't quite know. And see, very often, simply, the world simply does not support us. And we don't create greater and greater harmony by going forward. This is not exactly what you're saying, but I had an incident once that was very dynamic in this very dynamic lesson for me. I had a very strong intuition about something that should happen. And uh, I started putting out my intuition with a lot of force. But I put out my intuition with so much force that I generated a tremendous negative reaction among a number of people till my putting forward just kept creating more and more bad energy. And uh, I finally wrote a letter to everyone involved and said, I believe that I started with a true inspiration, but by this point, the dissonance created by my attempt to carry through on that has become so great that I withdraw. Now, the very interesting thing was, and I really did, I really withdrew. And then what I had intuitively felt should happen from the beginning did happen. But actually, I'm sure it would not have happened if I had persisted. So sometimes you are right, but it's not working. And so you have to just pull back and be dynamic. You have to keep your consciousness together. And so you have to keep your consciousness together, even if that means temporarily or permanently letting go of something that even intuitively you know is important, but if it's destroying your consciousness in the effort to accomplish it, that was the thought of, don't get, don't get the um, idea going in your head that you're a loser. If you keep losing the battle, you better back up and win somewhere. Does that make sense? I know in my own life particularly, Swami actually really wanted me to write, but I just still haven't been able to do it. So 25 years ago, he said, why don't you just speak instead? Because you can do that more easily. It'll give you confidence. So someday maybe I'll write, I don't know. But this, was, this, whole, this whole trip was a preparation for something else. 
I'm still doing it. I still am not writing. I'm still talking. But I'm learning, you know. And so maybe it's next lifetime. Maybe it's the lifetime after. You have to have a long rhythm view on these things. So that's sort of like, I don't know where it all comes from. I don't know how it all fits together. And I mean, I can look at many things he's asked me to do over the years. I haven't done a fraction of them. But he's planting seeds. Maybe later in this incarnation, maybe another incarnation. Many intuitions I have about myself, they just don't come to fruition. Just can't quite pull it all together, folks. You know, but that doesn't mean I'm wrong. It's just not happening. You just keep your eye on the goal. Is that, is that fair enough? Yeah. All right. We all understand that one, don't we? Swami's so charming, you know, he'll bring up the same thing to me as if he's never said it. <laughs> And I just listen attentively as if I've never heard it, you know. <laughs> Thinking, maybe this time it'll work. Let's try it. <laughs> After a while, you just have to get a sense of humor about it. Otherwise, you're just too sad. <laughs> I've been sad a lot of years. I just decided, sad, it just doesn't take you anywhere. Yeah. But you don't quit either. But you're not sad about it. All right. Anything else, or shall we call it a night? All right. I don't remember. Does everyone know what we read next? Is it three more chapters that we read next? I think we get into devotion. And what is it? What numbers? Eight, nine, and ten. Ten, eleven, twelve for next week. Okay. Thank you all very much. Pleasure. <laughs>